Hi there, ladies and gents. It's uh, Dan from Adventure More UK. Uh, welcome to another episode of my podcast. Today's uh, special guest is a bronze medalist uh, at the Paralympic Games in London 2012. He's also a US Marine Corps veteran. The man is Mr. Rob Jones. How are you, my friend? Uh, doing good, man. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Um, like I said before, uh, obviously, I know you're a busy man, so I appreciate you coming on. Um, hey, yeah, uh, obviously, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. It's a real honor to, to meet you. Yeah, no problem. I appreciate it. Um, like I said, um, you know, we're both veterans, uh, you know, of, of, of different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you're in the, as I said, you're in the US Marine Corps, obviously in the British Army. But I feel like there's, um, there's, there's definitely a connection no matter what country you've been, you know, your country you've served. And I feel like that's something that you can talk. I've talked to, you know, US, I, I had a, uh, Ray Kashkar, who's a you know U.S. Navy SEAL, I've had guys who are you know Danish uh, officers who I was attached to when I was in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and you know I've obviously worked with the British as well, and uh, Lithuanians, Italians, I was, you know quite a lot of people. Uh, so I feel like there's always going to be a connection there, no matter where you're from. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So first thing I want to want to talk about is sort of pre-military. So before you joined the military before you joined the US Marine Corps, what, what, what was life like for you? Um, well, I grew up uh, on a horse farm in Virginia, uh, pretty, pretty normal childhood, um, you know, chores relating to picking up horse poop and weed whacking and, and doing stuff like that on the farm. And then uh, went to a school over here in Virginia called Virginia Tech. Um, okay. I actually started in computer science and I didn't, I wasn't a very good student, um, at Virginia tech. And so by my third year, um, I wasn't, I might've been failing. I'm not sure. I wasn't doing very well in my grades. And so I recognized that I was probably going to have to go to school for longer than four years if I wanted to graduate in computer science. And this kind of sent me on a, a soul searching, uh, trip, uh, in my junior year, I was I was feeling kind of isolated and lonely. I didn't have a whole lot of friends and feeling down about myself. And I read this book uh, called Brotherhood of Heroes about the Battle of Pele Lu in World War II, uh, which is okay. a famous Marine Corps battle. And yeah, it just kind of struck a chord with me and made me recognize these these things that I was missing from my life that were um, leaving these holes were things like uh, courage and brotherhood and, and selflessness. And so I figured the best way for me to go find those missing pieces in my life was to join the Marine Corps. And so that's what I did. Yeah, that's cool. Um, so was there anyone, any other members of your family that joined the Marine Corps or any, any other, uh, any other, uh, military establishment? No Marines. Um, to my knowledge, <clears throat> uh, my dad was, a uh, drafted in Vietnam in the army, but okay. he didn't go to Vietnam. We didn't, it wasn't really a big, uh, didn't play a big role in, our relationship or anything. Um, so yeah, well, I didn't really come from much of a military family or anything. It's just, uh, I had a couple of friends that joined the Marine Corps and that's why I read that book. Um, yeah. so it was kind of lucky in that regard. And then, yeah, I just, just so happened to find that book in the Marine Corps at the right time in my life. Yeah. How did your family feel about joining, joining the military? Uh, they were very surprised, uh, because, I wasn't really what you would, which, what you would call a, a person that was, that you would expect to be joining the military. I was kind of a computer nerd, um, played a lot of video games and that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, they were very surprised. And obviously my mom and my dad were very scared at the same time. Cause I joined in 2006. And as you probably know, the battle of Ramadi was going on in Iraq and we were still in Afghanistan. So there was a, a lot of war still going on at that time. So yeah. You know that's going to scare a parent when when a, when their child joins the military during, you know, uh, the height of a war. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and 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 you say that you obviously studied computer science at school, at high school, mm-hmm. but you actually joined as a combat engineer, didn't you? Yeah, I did, and that's kind of a, a matter of circumstance. I mean, I changed my major um, after I joined the Marine Corps because I just my original plan was to to be an officer, um, and in order to be an okay. officer, you have to have a degree. And I just wanted to get to war as, as soon as I possibly could. So I changed my major uh, from computer science to interdisciplinary studies. It was the only one that 
uh, I could finish in four years. So it was, it was the one that got me out of college and got me the degree that I was going to need to go to OCS. Um, and so as a part of that process, I wanted to be a Marine before I joined the Marine Corps um, because that look, that would look better on my application to be an officer if I had some experience. And so I joined the local reserve unit, and that reserve unit was a combat engineer, and all they, uh, all they had was combat engineer billets available. Uh, so okay. it was kind of a matter of circumstance, and I really got I got pretty lucky in that that particular unit was a combat engineer unit that dealt with explosives and mine detection and IED detection, as opposed to a combat engineer unit that would have been uh, more towards the construction and uh, airport maintenance side of things because those are also possibilities when you join as a combat engineer. Yeah. So I got, I got I got really lucky in that regard. Yeah, yeah. So obviously, how long is your training in in total uh, up until you qualify as a combat engineer? The total amount of training would be thirteen weeks of boot camp where you learn how to be a what they call a basically trained marine. And then uh, from there, a combat engineer would do three weeks of Marine combat training where you kind of learn the very, very basics of infantry tactics. And then um, from there, it's another, I think, six to eight weeks. I don't remember exactly. Six to eight weeks of combat engineer school where you learn, again, the basics of, of combat engineering. So you learn everything from construction to mine detection to uh, demolitions during that time period. Okay. And then there's even, so, at that point, uh, since we were kind of responsible for the IED threat as well, they did a little section about IED detection. Okay. So do, is it kind of continual? Like, So once you join your battalion or whatever it, whatever it is you join, uh, is it continual training and, and, and learning? Or is it kind of like that's what you do and then that's it? Yeah, pretty much it's continual training. So I was a reservist, um, and I think you you all probably have a, a pretty similar uh, system there where as a reservist you you go into your reserve, reserve unit one weekend every month uh, for mm. training. Now, if I had gone active duty, active duty they spend basically Monday to Friday training, uh, doing their yeah. job and learning. Um, so – as an active duty person, I would have done a lot more training, but yeah, it's, it's continuing, uh, continual training to get better and better and preparing for the inevitable, uh, deployment so that you are, uh, in a, the highest state of readiness as you, that, as you possibly can be as a unit. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And, and, and your first tour was in, in Iraq, wasn't it? In 2008. Yeah. Habania, Iraq in uh, 2008. Yeah. Yeah. So what was, was your role? difference because we'll talk about afghanistan a little bit afterwards but with iraq was it was it similar or different uh, what was it you actually did over there similar and different um iraq in 2008 had died down a lot uh especially habania so habania was relatively a safe area at that point and so the role had shifted from you know in the clear hold build strategy we were we were pretty solid in the build uh, portion of that and so as part of the build portion in Hubbany in 2008 the combat engineers were and my unit was uh, responsible for a lot of building Iraqi police stations and then okay. basically the, our, our job was to return a, a, a confidence in the, the populace to the Iraqi government and then also help them to feel safe that or feel that they were safe from uh, Al Qaeda and and quote unquote the bad guys, terrorists. Yeah, yeah. And so as a yeah, part yeah. of that, uh, we helped to build the Iraqi police infrastructure, which involved building Iraqi police stations um, and helping solidify those. And then also part of our role was to remove uh, IEDs if there were any, and then also remove weapons caches that were in the area. And so that's what I spent most of my time doing was the cache removal. Uh, role and so what that would equate to was uh, the infantry platoon that we were attached to I would usually be out there with two uh, me and one other combat engineer would be attached to an infantry platoon out in a forward operating base and they would get an intelligence from the local populace hey there's a, a weapons cache buried in this vacant lot for example or along this river or along this road and we would go out there set up security and then me and the other combat engineer would sweep 
that area with our metal detector to try and find the munitions. And yep. once we swept that area, if we found something, we would dig it up and kind of stack it. And then explosive ordnance disposal would come uh, come and take take it away or do whatever they wanted to do with it. A lot of the times they just blow it in place if it was safe. Um, and if there wasn't anything there, well, we you know cleared that area. And so that was kind of what we did for for seven months straight was just kind of do that over and over again and just help to uh, reestablish that sense of security in the in the civilian populace. Yeah. Okay. Um. So with um with Iraq now. Just from my personal point of view, my, my Iraq tour was a lot different to when I was in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I and, and obviously, I, I was a radio operator. That that was my job. Uh, I was a I was a role, in the role oh. signals, uh, which is, you know, you, I'm sure you have your your own signal operators or radio mm-hmm. operators, uh, specialists. Um, when once when, when you were in Iraq, were you, what uh, what what rank were you at, and what like what was your sort of like responsibilities? I was a lance corporal uh, in Iraq, so that's okay. the third third rank from the bottom, uh, private yeah. private first class, then then lance corporal in the Marine Corps, and yeah, my I was just a team member. I didn't really have any responsibilities besides, you know, do what I'm told by my team leader. Um, yeah, I would get sent to to do sweeps on my own and with another lance corporal, where I was senior to that other lance corporal. Um, but really, okay. you know, it's just me and one other guy. So there wasn't a whole lot of leadership responsibilities besides just doing our our job, uh, which was, you know, sweeping these sweeping these areas. Once the uh, infantry guys kind of told us it was safe and good to go, that they had security set up. So that was pretty much the uh, that was that was pretty much our my responsibility in in Iraq. Yeah, yeah. And and that that kind of brings me on to uh, 2010. So t- 2010 is when you went to Afghanistan, I believe. Um, yeah. So yeah. So obviously before your incident, because we'll talk a bit about that if that's okay. Um, mm-hmm. The what what was it? You was it a similar role or was it a bit different then? In it while she was in Afghanistan. Well, I say similar but different because the the similarities are that we are covering we're we're searching the ground for metal with a metal detector. And that's kind of why in Iraq we had the cash sweeping role and in Afghanistan and and in Iraq too, we had the IED detection role, but there just weren't a whole lot of IEDs where I was. So if I had, if we were, if I had been in Iraq in 2006 and Havania where it was uh, a lot more kinetic, then I would have probably been trying to find a lot more IEDs. Um, But we were trained to use the metal detectors and find mines and, and that kind of thing. So that's why, kind of why we had both jobs in Iraq and Afghanistan. But in Afghanistan, there okay. aren't really a whole lot of weapons caches because uh, most of the IEDs that they use were made from homemade explosives. So there just weren't really very many weapons caches to find. And also in 2010 in Afghanistan, uh, the war was picking back up there. And so there were a lot more IEDs. There was a lot more terrorist and Taliban activity. And so in Afghanistan, my role was pretty similar in that I was a team leader, but at the same time, I would usually get attached by myself or with one other guy to an infantry platoon or an infantry squad. So it would just be me and him. I wouldn't have much of a leadership role uh, in the in the patrol um, where my job there would be to go along with these, uh, these infantry patrol, patrols and whenever they came to an area that we figured there's a good chance that there's an IED up here, so like for for example, crossing a bridge, uh, I would go across the bridge first and make sure there weren't any IEDs in that general danger area, and then mark my path. And then once we got ac- once I got across, then everybody else would follow my little path across, and we would continue. So it'd be IED detection in in that in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, uh, for for instance, like going going back to sort of the similarities and the differences, like my my Iraq tour, um, I, I I spent a lot of time with uh, what's called JHC, which is the Joint mm-hmm. Helicopter Command, which is mm-hmm. <coughs> which is a mix, mixture of Danish, US, and Brits British. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I used to work with British Apache, uh, Apaches, the US Apaches. Um, I also spent a bit of time down in. Uh, Arif Jan down in Kuwait, um, mm-hmm. 
which is the big base down there. Um, but then when you go to Af- places like Afghanistan, I was I was attached to a Danish uh, infantry unit where I was their signaler on the ground. Because uh, mm. I, I don't know if it's similar for yourself, but we had a mixture of Danish and British. And, and, and like I said, there's a small minority of, uh, I think there was Lithuanians and Macedonians that were all mixed together in, in the same area. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's... Did, did you ever work with other nationalities while you were in Afghanistan? Yeah, so when we were in Afghanistan, we started in a place called Delaron. And so we, when we moved three months into our deployment, um, the Georgian army took our area of operations. And then we went and took over from um, British army and Royal Marines uh, in Sang in okay. Afghanistan. So we worked yeah, with yeah, them yeah. as well. Uh, during that time period. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, so that that's in Helmand, isn't it? It's like Sangin. Sangin's in, in Helmand. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, so like, like you say, because like, you would have been, you actually probably would have been in Afghanistan the same time as me. I went to Afghan in March 2010. So mm-hmm. up until October, October 2010. Um, yeah, so, yeah, same time. Yeah, yeah, so... Uh, just want to bring us bring it on to so in July so it would have been what July twenty second, that mm-hmm. was obviously the probably a, a, a quite a pinnacle sort of moment in your life. Um, for mm-hmm. people that don't know, um, but most people won't know that listen to my podcast. Um, is it okay if you explain what what happened on that day? Yeah, so um, you know what we were doing, what we had taken over from the area of operations and saying, and from. British Army Royal Marines, um, and what we were doing was taking their foothold that they had established and then pushing it out further, making it bigger, and we wanted to expand um, the area that we controlled all the way from uh, this place called Fob Inkerman uh, all the way to the Helmand River. And um, so the way that we were doing that was by doing pushes into Taliban territory. So we basically would just walk into Taliban territory, let them shoot at us, we'd shoot back, kill them, or they'd run away or whatever, and then we would seize compounds, uh, sweep them, make sure there weren't any booby traps in them, and then set them up as forward operating bases, and then use those as to do security patrols and kind of recenter, recenter ourselves, resupply ourselves, and then do another push, and then keep, we were, were going to keep doing that until we reached our basically limit of our area of operations. And so we did one of those pushes, and then on the day of the second push was July 22nd. And so I was sent out again with uh, an infantry squad as part of this push. There were kind of squads and platoons going all over the place. And basically what I was doing was acting as the IED specialist uh, for this, uh, let's see, first squad of 3rd Platoon of Kilo Company of 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines. And... Um, at some point, around one o'clock on that day, um, we, uh, our point man actually stepped on an IED, and so luckily the IED that he stepped on malfunctioned, and did what's called a low order detonation, where only a very very small amount of it went off. So it was basically a little firecracker went off next to him, and so he was uninjured, but in that situation. Uh, where there's one IED, as you know, there's going to be two, three, or four uh, because they like to cluster them to for maximum effect. And so that be, basically became an area that we knew there was probably going to be another IED in there. So then I stepped into my role to guide us through the area, um, guide us through basically what was essentially a mini minefield is a good way to, uh, to visualize it. And so I got my metal detector out and started moving through that area and uh, on that particular day, you know, my luck ran out, and I stepped on an IED that worked correctly, and that severed both of my legs uh, above the knee. Okay. And do you, do you remember much from it, or was it complete darkness? Do you remember? No, I remember most. Um, the only I, – I don't remember the actual stepping. I remember taking a step and then – blacking out and then waking up, you know, in, you know, up seemingly in an instant. Um, but it was more, probably more like 20, 25 seconds later, uh, that I woke back up. 
so I was knocked unconscious for that short period. And so, yeah, I remember everything from waking up after that. I was still, my, my fellow Marines still hadn't even gotten to me. Um, okay. And so I woke up and it was about what you would expect, you know, screaming, a lot of blood, uh, that kind of thing. My fellow Marines yelling to me that they were coming. You know, they can't immediately just come over because there's probably a third IED in there somewhere. So they have to be, yeah. they have to get another combat engineer to come over, sweep to me. And then at that point, then they can start rendering aid. So they put tourniquets on my, on my legs and they called in the helicopter, which was a British helicopter, by the way. So maybe you yeah. might've even, uh, you know, helped get that yeah, bird to me. Um, have been a British Chinook. Yeah. Yeah. So that's exactly, I, yeah. I don't remember actually being loaded on the helicopter. I, I kind of, it was an RAF uh, bird. So I don't know if that you would have been involved with RAF uh, logistics and that kind of thing, yeah. but maybe you would have played a role in that. Um, but yeah, so they applied the tourniquets, you know, the corpsman gave me some morphine and then they loaded me up onto a stretcher and they took that stretcher to a tank. And at that point, that's when they gave me another shot of something that made me unconscious. And then that tank, tank presumably went and met the helicopter and the helicopter took me to uh, Camp Bastion or Camp Leatherneck. Same yeah, thing. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes, it's just a, an area of Camp Bastion, isn't it, where, where yeah. you guys are, uh, where the US are. Um, so what, what was your process from obviously getting to Camp Bastion? Um, do you remember much about getting back to the US or was that quite a blur as well? Uh, I only woke up once during that time period in, in Germany, in Longstuhl, um, and okay. it was very briefly. Um, I knew that I had lost, at that point, I had actually thought that I had lost my legs below the knee because at sight of injury, they were, at least my, you know, the other Marines that were there told me they were slightly below the knee. Um, but I wake up in Germany to find out that they had to be amputated above the knee. And I was pretty, I was pretty out of it. I mean, I don't really, I only remember my... Uh, my squad leader telling me that I'd stepped on an IED, lost both legs above the knee, and then basically I got transferred um, to to Bethesda, Maryland. Um, and I was, I think I was from site of injury to Bethesda within three or four days. Uh, but I only okay. woke, woke up that one time. So I don't remember okay. much was of that, that process. That? And the next time I, after I woke up in, in Germany, the next time I woke up was being rolled out of um, the ambulance at uh, Camp, uh, or at... Uh, Bethesda Naval Hospital in Maryland. Is that is is that Walter Reed? It is now. At the time, it wasn't, but the the two bases okay. combined, the two hospitals combined, and so now it's Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. But when I got there originally, it was Bethesda Naval uh, Hospital or National Naval uh, Medical Center or something like that. Okay, okay. Um, so obviously, from the time of which you re, you know returned back to the to the U.S. to making. What I would call a, a recovery, a full recovery. How, how long was the process of like recovery and rehab and stuff like that? Uh, you know, I mean, recovery is kind of ongoing. I you could there's certain parts yeah. of my life I'm still working on recovery. Um, it's just you know as you get closer to 100, percent it's a lot harder to get, you know, to get that extra point one of a percent. But uh, I was probably back mostly recovered within. Uh, 13, 14 months. I was, I was walking everywhere I went with bionic knees. Um, I was running again. Um, hadn't quite learned how to ride a bicycle again, but I was pretty close. Um, I was rowing. So I was like kind of past the point of recovering my strength and I was regaining strength and becoming stronger. Um, so I'd say, you know, within about a little over a year, I was pretty much what I would call recovered. And then I retired after 18 months, uh, mostly because yeah. it just takes a while to do the paperwork to, to get your, you have to get your, uh, your medical board where they determine whether or not you're fit or unfit for duty. And then you have to decide if you retire and then you have to do all these classes to retire. It just takes time to process all the paperwork. Yeah. So obviously that was in 2011 when, when you left. Uh, yeah, I retired officially military. December of 2011. Yeah, okay. Um, now, it's something when I was looking into, like, for yourself, like, obviously, you received a Purple Heart, obviously. Mm -hmm. And for people that don't know what the Purple Heart is, it's basically a, some, for someone who was killed or injured, wounded in, you know, obviously, in operational 
tour, on an uh-huh. operational tour. Uh, and obviously it's just, you know, it's US only. Um, it's something yeah. I actually didn't realise until only a couple of weeks ago is that when I was doing a little bit of research into yourself, is that we don't have an equivalent in the in the, in the UK, I believe. People might really? want to correct me, but I'm, I, I, I believe we don't have an equivalent. We don't have, uh, I believe, I read an article that Prince Harry was trying to have basically getting some some system that we you know we were awarded the same equivalent like as a as a purple heart but as a british sort of equivalent so it's something i didn't realize we didn't have like so we don't have your what you would call you know your your purple heart uh so that that, that, that was something that i found quite interesting um yeah it's very so, interesting yeah. i mean the purple heart was is our oldest uh it's our oldest medal it was the it was the only medal we gave out for a while george washington uh created it back in the revolutionary war and so yeah it's one mm. of our it's it's our oldest medal that we've ever given out that surprised me yeah well you got we have a lot more medals than you guys in general i mean i i my uh my wife is english and so i've been to okay. a couple she has friends that are in the military now so i've been to a couple balls and i wore my dress blues and so i would always i had like a big stack of like 13 or 14 medals over here and everybody yeah. was always impressed you know with this big stack of medals yeah all the British, the Brits were because, you know, usually they only have three or four and that's kind of like a guy that's done a lot, but we just have a lot yeah, of medals yeah. that you, you give out for like my first deployment. I, I got six or seven and a lot of them are basically redundant. You know, it's like you yeah. deployed during war, you, de- you did a sea deployment during war, you went to Iraq, uh, you get a medal for being an Iraqi freedom. So you get like six or seven medals just from deploying one time. But I think we yeah. just have more medals in general. But that is one that I would expect um, that you guys would have had. Yeah, yeah, it's something. Yeah, like I said, we, 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 again, someone might want to correct me, but I believe you know by looking on, you know, looking aligned, we do, we don't have one. Um, so when when you uh, was obviously when you left military in in two thousand eleven, uh, as you mentioned earlier, like a lot of your rehab, you know, a lot of the rehab you were doing was around. You did a lot of rowing, and that brings mm-hmm. me on to sort of how. You know, as I mentioned in your introduction about winning a bronze medal at the London Paralympics, um, how what 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 went from, you know, going and doing your rehab, doing the rowing as part of your rehab, to winning a bronze medal? How how does that even that how does that even come about? So uh, I first found out about the Paralympics and Paralympic rowing when I was probably two weeks in the hospital at Bethesda. And, you know, just working out was something that I wanted to, that I enjoyed doing, just working out in the gym in general. Um, and so I was concerned that I wasn't going to be able to really do that anymore because I didn't know what life as a double above the amputee was like. And so I just kind of started doing research, trying to figure out whether or not it was possible for me to continue to work out. And so that just kind of led me down a rabbit hole of, you know, I, I think I Googled something like, you know, disabled people working out. And then that led me to find out about the Paralympics. And then I found out about rowing in the Paralympics. And one of the reasons that I was interested in Paralympic rowing was because I just remembered that rowing on the concept two was a a heck of a workout uh, Mm. when I was, before I was wounded. And so at the time I didn't really put a whole lot of thought into it. I just kind of, you know, cataloged it for later uh, put it aside because yeah. I had so much I had to do. I I was I needed to learn how to walk again before I any, thought about going to the Paralympics or anything. But it just seemed something that could be interesting. Uh, maybe I could learn how to work out, and then uh, as a you know I could row as a way to work out, and then maybe I could use this opportunity, this this injury, as an opportunity to to go to the Paralympics and do something that very very few people get to do. And so I just kind of logged that away for a while. And then once I recovered, you know, a little less than a year later, I started looking into it again. And a lot of things had to fall into place for it. You know, it just, it just so happens that there was a place where I could learn how to row um, in Washington, D.C. Uh, that did, you know, adaptive rowing, they called it at the time. And the guy that ran the program was a Navy veteran that did work at Walter Reed. And we were able to get a rowing machine uh, in the in the clinic for me to use, and I would go out and train with him three, four times uh, a week. And yeah, I kind of I took naturally to it, and then 
Um, he also knew another female double above knee amputee um, that wanted to go to the Paralympics too because that was a requirement for my rowing category. It's a mixed gender boat. And so I would have had to need a partner. And he just so happened to know this really good, uh, badass chick that was a double above the amputee as well. And, you know, we met, we liked each other enough to, to be able to spend, you know, every day together. Um, and, you know, we, we rode well together. And then, so that kind of fell into place. And then, you know, we um, trained for, three months and became the you know, one national selection trials in order to become the national team for the United States. And then we, a couple months later, we went to Serbia to qualify the boat for the Paralympics because we hadn't qualified yet. And then after that, uh, we trained some more and then we showed up in London 2012 and, and won the bronze medal uh, there. That's it's quite, it's quite a, it, that's one thing like as i said at the beginning like that's brought brought me sort of like towards you like i oh you know i thought if i found interesting obviously going from something quite you know down and negative obviously having your accident or not accident but your incident to going and winning a bronze medal at the paralympics that that's that's just like most people would only want to dream of doing something like that now yeah. one thing one thing was it you came fourth at the world championships as well the year after yeah, twenty thirteen. Yeah. yeah, and and so when I was again when I was doing a bit of research into it, uh, I don't like admitting it, but unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, uh, you beat you beat us Brits by two hundredth of a second, apparently. Yeah, I think it was two. Yeah, so that, that's very close. It wasn't quite that close, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, very very close. Uh, which you know, uh, you know, it's it's something that I feel like, you, you know, is amazing you know it's absolutely amazing what you've gone from and what you you know what you, what you did now Thank um it, no not a problem to so 2013 uh, we're going to 2013 now obviously you stepped out of the 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 boat you don't call it a boat do you what do you call it a, is it a boat yeah boat you call it a boat no you call yeah. it a boat you can call it a skull you can call it a shell skull yeah but we'll just yeah yeah <laughs> so, yeah we, so, yeah we, you, so you stepped out of the boat in uh in 2013 or october 2013 which is when you started your across the states uh cycle mm -hmm. um uh, how how did again how did that come about how how what was the change between rowing and going on a bike when i got wounded um i kind of I had been on uh, on a certain on a path uh, towards brotherhood and selflessness and, and courage um, that the Marine Corps had set me on. Set me to war, and so that's how I was. Um, that's the path that I was on to those to those qualities and those traits that I wanted. Mm -hmm. And so when I got wounded, um, I got taken off that path by my injury because I wasn't really able to go to war anymore. And so. Mm -hmm. After my recovery, I, my recovery was a kind of all about gathering the tools that I was going to need in order to find that path again. And then when I when I retired, that was me setting forth on on trying to find that new path. And and rowing was the first, you know, attempt to find that. Um, and it was pretty pretty early on, even in the 2012 season. As much as I, you know, I was enjoying rowing, I knew that it wasn't going to be the activity that got me back to that path because it was mostly it was a mostly selfish uh, endeavor. It was about going and, and winning medals and kind of glorifying yourself through that. And it was an important aspect of my recovery because it kind of was this really big moment in which, you know, I, I set out and I tried to accomplish something with my new body and my new circumstances. And I, and I did, and I was successful. And so it kind of helped me regain my self-confidence and my self-reliance. But at the same time, yeah, like I said, there wasn't a whole lot of, meaning or purpose behind it. And I needed something that kind of pushed me uh, physically and mentally, but then also had an over a purpose bigger than just, just that bigger than me. And so um, I, I, during the 2013 season, I started thinking about other things I could do because I knew that rowing wasn't going to be the thing. Uh, wasn't going to be the activity. And so I just remembered how long it took me to ride my bike across the country and, or how long it took me to learn how to ride a bike again. And I started thinking, well, maybe I could push myself to my absolute physical and mental limits by being an endurance athlete and doing this really tough challenge um, and raise money at the same time. 
uh, for, for veteran charities. And so that's how I decided to do it. And I pretty much took off right after the rowing season. I didn't do a whole lot of training for it. Um, all I really did was just make sure that my rowing prosthetics or my running, my riding, my cycling prosthetics uh, fit correctly. My bike was in good shape. I, um, I bought a U-Haul truck that had, or a U-Haul truck, it's like, um, it's like a moving truck, a big box, yeah, a wooden box on the back of a flatbed truck. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you kind of loaded up with supplies. My little brother, who was 18 at the time, drove it for me, and we just drove up to Maine, and I just started. Um, and I figured, you know, the first quarter or half of the ride could be training for the for the second half because I didn't have a I didn't have a timeline for it. I just wanted to make it. And so I didn't spend a whole lot of time riding in circles. I just wanted to apply all that mileage to the, to the ride itself. And so, um, we started that in October of 2013. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, um, it's a pretty impressive, uh, feat, feat of endurance yeah, like, for especially someone who's never, you know, obviously cycling was something you were struggling or not struggling with, but you, you know, you, you just getting back in, it's like riding, riding again from when you were a kid, you know, mm-hmm. learning to ride again. So yeah, I can imagine. Like for me personally, obviously, I, I'm not. I'm not a cyclist. I couldn't do. I, I sure I could do it, but you know, it's that. Obviously, it's all about the mental game, really. Yeah. You know, the the brain is only as capable as as. Sorry, the body is only as capable as your brain. I'd uh-huh. say. Um. So, um. From that that uh, event, uh, I know you you raised over was it over a quarter of a million dollars for, for you know like you say for veteran charities. Um, mm-hmm. And I know, uh, the bike I know ride you have was uh, 125,000. Yeah, yeah. So we, I know you have uh, read somewhere that you've got a sort of a figure in your head that you want to raise over. Is it over a million dollars for, for the charities, for the veteran charities? Yeah, I set a goal of a million dollars for the bike ride just because I wanted to pick a big number. <laughs> and so yeah, I, didn't yeah. really, I didn't know anything about raising money or anything like that, so I just picked a big number. And so we got 125,000, which is awesome. Um, mm. but yeah, I'd like to raise a million dollars by the time I die. That'd be cool. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm sure you will. I'm pretty certain you will. Uh, that's, that's kind of a given really, uh, especially that's, you know, the stuff you've done, which again, now uh, will bring me on to is it 2017. Yeah. End of 2017 mm-hmm. is when you did your 31 marathons, 31 days, 31 cities. Now yeah. the first part of that, you actually did the first day of it. Was it in, in London? Um, yeah. And that's, and that's that's how I, uh, I I watched I actually watched a video uh, was it uh, some police officers uh, uh, British obviously British police officers in London like giving you like, adv- I don't know what they were doing they were giving you advice or help or you know donating and that's what they actually brought me, me towards yeah that was it yeah yeah, yeah. And, and I remember seeing that a good number of a couple of months ago I think it was a couple of months ago now and that's that's why you know it struck an interest in you. Um, mm-hmm. Now, obviously, from there, obviously, you flew back, obviously, to the states, and then did the rest of it in the states, and also you did parts in in Canada as well, didn't you? Yeah, I did one in Toronto. Yeah, yeah. So, for most able-bodied people, that would be considered an extreme sort of endurance event. Now, yeah. obviously, for yourself in the situation you're in, how, like, because obviously you had a lot of people join you around around the different you know cities that you went in now mm-hmm. how like obviously by that point would you did you make a bit of a name for yourself or was you still just robbed from robbed from the farm or whatever um i mean i i would say that i certainly made a, a bigger name for myself than your average person i suppose uh in mm-hmm. certain in in certain uh, environments or certain circles um but i wouldn't say i wouldn't say i'm you know famous by any means any any stretch of the word i might be a little bit more well known than your average veteran in veteran circles um yeah. or maybe in running circles people might have heard of me a little bit more often but i wouldn't necessarily say that i'm particularly you know well known in the in the absolute sense yeah so with with, with the, the the 31 marathons 31 days 31 cities like how how did that come about? Was that something you did a lot of planning for? I can imagine there was a lot of planning. Yeah, towards so it. that one I did a lot of planning and a lot of uh, training. And the reason 
so when I finished the bike ride, I, I, I realized that there was still, there was still something missing, uh, from the, the formula that I had going on. I, I definitely ex- I experienced courage and, and brotherhood on the bike ride with my little brother and having to ride up and down all these gigantic mountains in the winter time. Mm-hmm. But what I realized was that the underlying purpose for the bike ride was still mostly about, it was about me. It was about pushing myself and seeing what I was capable of and seeing what I could do. So it's still mostly about me. And so what I needed to do in order to be totally satisfied with something was have it, have the overall purpose of it be one that was uh, selfless. And so my mission, my, oh, the reason that I wanted to do the, the marathons was to create a story that other veterans and civilians alike could use to help themselves uh, when they struggled. And so that was the reason that I did it. And on top of that, it was a really tough um, challenge that was going to require courage and it was going to require brotherhood uh, in, in the camaraderie uh, in the greater sense um, by having a team to help me do it and then having people come out and join me. And so that's, that's the, that's how I figured I would uh, create this story was by doing this challenge that most people would consider to be impossible or they really, really question whether or not it could be done. And I would get coverage for it because the media would hear about it and they wouldn't be able to help but not tell that story because it's such a double above the MVT running 31 back-to-back marathons. It's, it's this thing that just kind of blows your mind. And that's what I wanted to do. So that's how I was going to get this story out there and create this story by doing this really tough challenge. Um, and so that's the reason that I decided to do it. And that's how it came about. And I trained for um, a year and a half uh, in order to do it. And during that time, planned out the logistics and uh, my wife and my mom and uh, a friend were my kind of team in my RV with me. And I had volunteers that, that were at home but they were the kind of the core team and we would just kind of run a marathon, hop in the RV, drive to the next city, run a marathon, you know, and just kind of follow that pattern uh, around the country. And yeah, I mean, and somehow, somehow we did it without, without any hiccups big enough to prevent us from making it to the next city. Yeah. Yeah. I, like I said, I've seen, I've seen videos of when you did it and it, obviously, like I said, it, it is incredible. Like what you've done, like it's, it's, uh, you know, as I said before, like for someone in your situation, never mind someone who's, you know, able-bodied, um, then, you know, I think that's, it's an amazing, amazing uh, achievement. Now, Thank you. one thing, uh, no, I, I, like I said, it's just, like I said, I, f- I feel like it's, it's a, it's a great story. To, and, and that's why I wanted to talk to you. Now, one thing I want to talk about is something about achieving things, and it's something that I found quite funny. And I don't know if if, if you find it funny at all, but I, I've seen videos of you, of you learning to skip. I was just wondering how your skipping's coming on. <laughs> you mean my um, j- uh, jump and rope? Sorry, yeah, you call it jump rope. So we we call yeah, it skip skipping rope. in the uh, UK. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. good. One of the things I wanted to do back in therapy, I don't know why. I think I, I was I think I was into CrossFit. And a lot of what they do in CrossFit is double unders with the uh, uh, jumping rope. And so that was just something I'd been interested in, never really tried it much. Um, so it was just something that I decided to see if I could figure out recently. And uh, yeah, it's going it's going okay. I haven't worked on it tons. Um, I haven't gotten yeah. to the point where I can do a double under yet, but I can, you know, sit there for a minute or two and, and do normal, you know, single skip. So it's it's coming along pretty good. Yeah, that's good. It's good. Um, just last few things I want to talk about. I know obviously you you got things to do today, so I don't want to keep you too long. Um, so one thing I wanted to, I was going to ask you: if you could do all this again, knowing what you've been through and what you've done, would you do it all again, or would you change it? Um, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't change anything. I mean, in my in my vows to my to my wife on our wedding day, I said. Um, everything that led me to that point, you know, was worth it. And I'd do it a thousand times again, uh, to end up in, in that pos- same position. Um, and as, you know, as much as I don't want to be a double above me amputee, um, you know, if I could have a surgery right now to give me my legs back, I, you know, I'd probably do that. Um, uh, but I wouldn't want to change the experiences that I've had at this point because 
for all I know, if I hadn't stepped on that IED, you know, 20 minutes later, I could have been killed by a sniper or, you know, something like that. And it did give me this opportunity to be, to create this story that I've just told you. And I think that that story has probably helped. Uh, I, I know it's helped a lot of people because I get told yeah. that all the time. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of resulted in, I wouldn't want to give up, uh, you know, my son and my wife and, and all these experiences that I've had. And so stepping on, on an IED and going through that would, uh, it's, it's, it's a, a price that I'm more than willing to pay. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's, that I, I can, I can understand that. As I say, coming from a military background, I can understand, you know, I've, sp I've spoken, met people like yourself in, in, in the British military and then they're the same. They'd say they do it all again to experience the things they've done after. Yeah, I don't. I, think that's uh, something... I don't think I've ever met another amputee as a result of the wars uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan that has given any other answer. Um, hmm. So I think that's probably a common. You would think, as somebody that hasn't been through that kind of thing, that you would. It's it's you would think about doing that, but I think the vast vast majority of the time, maybe not one hundred percent, but the vast majority. Um, people recognize that uh, every tragedy presents opportunities and to exactly. and opportunities to do some serious good in the world. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I, I, sometimes I feel like when I speak to people, like, like I said, I, I like, I love speaking to people like yourself, like military veterans and uh, stuff like that, because I feel like um, I don't like using the word, but other civilians uh, inverted commas, they, would not understand the certain things that we've done and seen, you know, things like that. Like, and like you talk about brotherhood and courage and commitment to team and country and all that sort of stuff. I don't think people in normal society would understand what we've been through and what we've done. You know, obviously, bearing in mind, we've done different things, but in mm -hmm. similar places. Um, so I feel there is always, like I said at the beginning, there's always like that connection, no matter where you're from in the world between military mm -hmm. veterans and last thing i was going to ask you is if you could give advice to anyone so for people that may be listening today like what advice would you give to someone if say obviously for instance like you know we're going through that uh, quite a bad time at the moment with uh, covid and stuff and obviously the same for yourselves in the states what advice would you give someone who's feeling a bit you know down or not feeling like they can do anything and just sat at home doing nothing yeah. Um, so what I what I say to people is it's there's two two aspects of this that I think my story represents quite well. And the first one is what I call use the weight. And so as you go through life, you're going to have difficulties and challenges and stresses. And these stresses are a lot like having a barbell on your shoulders in the gym. It weighs you down. And in the gym, when you have that barbell on your shoulders, it's there whether whether you like it or not. It's, you know, it's on your shoulders um, and you kind of have two choices, whether, you know, when, when it's on your shoulders, whether you, you can sit there and hold it, it's your first option and hold on to it for as long as you can and just resist that barbell on your shoulders, resist that weight and resist that stress or that difficulty. Uh, but you're going to realize pretty quickly that your energy is limited. It's finite. And when you're sitting there just resisting it, it's for as long as you can, um, that time isn't infinite either. And so eventually it's going to start to weigh you down uh, more and more. And it's going to weigh you down, weigh you down until eventually you run out of energy and it topples you over. And the weight, the barbell, the stress is pinned across your back and you're unable to get up. You're unable to do anything, help yourself, help anybody else. Um, or uh, your other option when you, that weight's on your shoulders or that stress is presented to you, you're in that difficult situation is to take the weight and strict press it over your head and then do it again and again and again and use that weight or use that stress. And every time you do, you adapt to it a little bit more and a little bit more and you become stronger and stronger and more capable of handling that stress or that difficulty. And because you use that original stress, now you can handle bigger ones, bigger weights and bigger stresses down the line until eventually it gets to a point where there's not a, enough weight in that gym or there's not a stress big enough in the world uh, that you can't handle it. Um, and you actually have to go out and you have to create ways to make your life difficult so that you can continue, uh, to, to get stronger and, and, um, you know, create these bigger stresses for yourself. 
And so that's that's what I would say is figure out how you can use your difficult situation to produce good in the world or produce opportunities for yourself. And that's kind of easier said than done. Um, it's very easy to say that type of thing. Um, so what I partner that with is the, the, the aspect of my life that has made everything that you know we've talked about possible is the selflessness um, that I developed in the Marine Corps. And so throughout my life, I've used my, my love and my desire to do what's best for the people that I care about in my life that more than myself um, to, to do things that most people would say are, are impossible. So whether it was, you know, walking through minefields, uh, which nobody wants to do, or, you know, running 31 marathons in 31 days and recovering, um, for, for my family, for my mom. Um, I've, I've, I've been able to use that, that love, uh, for them to, to do what I had to do to give myself the strength. And so what we all need to do when times get tough and when we're in difficult situations and it seems like it's hopeless is figure out what that thing is or where that place is or who that person is that we care about more than ourselves that is depending on us to be successful in whatever we're, whatever we're trying to do, whether it's just getting out of bed in the morning or whether it's finding a new job after you got laid off after, you know, during COVID-19 or whatever the case may be, recovering from your own tragedy. Uh, find that person that needs you to be successful, uh, that you care about and you love more than yourself, and that's where you get the strength to uh, to get yourself to rise to the occasion and do the things that you don't want to do and do the things that you feel like maybe you can't do. Yeah, that that, that that's amazing. Like honestly, like it is. It's so good to hear you know people's stories like that. And and, and like I said, I, I just want to say thank you. Thank thanks for coming on and. I really, really appreciate it taking the time, um, and it's been been a pleasure, absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, it's really nice to speak to someone like yourself. Thank you um, too, brother. And um, no, we're just going to go ahead no and assume problem. that you're the guy that dispatched that helicopter to my site of injury. So thanks for doing that too. <laughs> yeah, no, no problem. No, I could, I could, I was in that general area at the time. So yeah, you never know. You never know. Mm-hmm. Um, so last, last thing. Where can people find out what you've been up to or what you're doing in the future? What's the best place? Uh, my social media is uh, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at uh, Rob Jones Journey. And my website's robjonesjourney.com. So if anybody wants to get in touch, that's how you can do it. Awesome. I, well, like I said, I'll put it in the description. I'll make sure that people know that. Um, so thank you very much, Rob. Uh, appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, for people that want to keep in touch with myself, I, as I say, I'll put links in the description to my, my social medias. Um, please make sure you like the video, subscribe, comment, whatever it is you want to do. If I don't see you soon, I'll catch you on the flip side.